Jonathan Edwards once wrote, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. If you grew up in church in America, chances are that quote seems really harsh to you. Maybe even overly harsh, because although we're inundated, completely flooded with sermons and books and songs and movies and commentary on the love of God, which is wonderful by the way, and we should be, we rarely, however, if ever, give attention to another very real, very important aspect of God, which is his wrath. Just do a search online for quotes about God's love and then do a search for quotes about God's wrath. Go online and look for books, videos, songs, literature about each of those aspects of God. It's easily 100 to 1. In fact, I searched for a bumper video, an intro video to this sermon about the wrath of God on numerous sites this week through hundreds, literally hundreds of videos. I could not find one single video. But type in the love of God in that same search bar and you'll have endless videos to watch. Why is that? It's because talking about the love of God makes us feel good. The wrath of God, not so much. We don't like being uncomfortable, and so we just don't talk about it. And here's the, the issue. The longer we go without talking about these less popular aspects of the nature of God, the more shocking to our senses, even offensive they are to us when someone brings them up. And so this quote by Jonathan Edwards seems harsh, overly harsh, until you read the last part of chapter six in the book of Revelation, which we'll be doing today as we continue our sermon series working our way through that book where we get a glimpse of the horror, the, the overly harsh reality that is the wrath of God. It's an aspect of the nature of God that we cannot ignore because listen, lost people don't know they're lost. And so if all we ever do is tell them about the love of God, as wonderful as that is, when you tell a lost person they must be saved, if all they've ever heard from Christians about God up to that point in their lives is that he's a loving, merciful, forgiving, benevolent God, then what do they need saving from? God's love and mercy and forgiveness and benevolence? No. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, hey man, I'm good. I'm happy that you found all that in your God, but I don't need it, I'm good. Lost people don't know they're lost, and so they don't know they need to be rescued because we've never told them there's anything to be rescued from. Which is why Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. In fact, he not only referenced hell over and over again, he describes it in great detail. He said it's a place of eternal torment, Luke 16, 23 of unquenchable fire, Mark 9.43, where the worm does not die, Mark 9.48, where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, Matthew 13.42, and from which there is no return, even to warn our loved ones still here on earth, Luke 16, 19 through 31. He goes on to describe hell as a place of outer darkness, Matthew 25, 30. He compares it to Gehenna in Matthew 10, 28, which was a, a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abounded. The, the fact is, Jesus talked about hell 
a lot more than he talked about heaven. And he described it much more vividly. He knew, believed, and warned about the absolute reality and horror of hell. Why? Because he knew that hell, the wrath of God, as horrible as it is, is the fate that awaits all people apart from him. Because of Adam's sin, we're all guilty and deserve God's eternal punishment, okay? Contrary to popular belief, hell is not a place where God sends those who have been especially bad. No, as, as Leslie Schumacher says, hell is our default destination. And so we need a rescuer. Otherwise, we all stand condemned. The apostle John describing Jesus said, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, Revelation 19.15. John the Baptist said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, John 3.36. The apostle Paul said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. He also said, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, Romans 5.9. He also said, but because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2.5, which we're gonna see in our story today. Listen, this is just a few samplings. It's all throughout scripture, which is why Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because God's wrath is an ever-present reality hanging over this world, over the lives of lost people who don't even know they're lost. How incredibly foolish is it of us to not tell them. Okay, look, we only get one shot at this life. One chance to tell lost people about Jesus, the comfortable parts and the uncomfortable parts, so they understand their need for a savior to rescue them from the wrath of God that we are all facing apart from Christ. That's why uh, Jesus' final words to his disciples were, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19, because he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. You understand, this is precisely why Jesus gives John the vision that he gives him of the terrifying reality of God's wrath being poured out on this world in the first place, because he wants everyone to turn to him before that great and terrible day. Why? because he loves you. And so it's our job to tell them, and because we only get one shot at this, we need to make it count. Because lost people don't know they're lost, and how will they ever know if we don't tell them? Let's pick the story back up then where we left off last time as John's vision continues in chapter six where the first six seals on the scroll in Jesus' hand are being opened and judgment is being poured out on the earth. This will be part two of the sermon we started last week in the same chapter. So let's read it together where we left off last time. Revelation chapter six, uh, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sun vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
than the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every one slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? In the first 11 verses of the chapter, uh, we covered the opening of the first five seals. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, With the first four come the four horsemen of the apocalypse, powerful images of four riders on different colored horses who meet out various judgments on the earth, accomplished through human forces, ushering in the tribulation. These are angels of judgment who accelerate human depravity running its natural course on the earth. And as a result, Believers experience the wrath of men. Tribulation at the hands of the wicked as described in the opening of the fifth seal where we hear the martyrs crying out to God who assures them that there are going to be more martyrs to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord when his wrath is poured out on the earth, which is what is happening here at the opening of the sixth seal. And immediately we see the stark contrast between the wrath of men which affects a fourth of the world's population in the earlier part of the chapter through war and famine, and the wrath of God, which affects the order of creation itself. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. These are great cosmic disturbances that herald the beginning of the last days. This is a sharp departure from the political turmoil, war, and even death of the first five seals. And for a people who held that uh, well-ordered movements of heavenly bodies were a token of God's providential control, which the ancient people certainly did, the breakdown of that order would be a clear and grim announcement that the end of the world was at hand. In other words, As bad as it will be to experience the wrath of men at the opening of the first five seals, it doesn't compare to the wrath of God at the opening of the sixth seal, which is a direct response, by the way, to the prayers of the martyrs who cry out back in verse 10, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The answer to that prayer is here a complete dismantling of creation itself. As Robert Mounts explains, the earthquake is a regular feature of divine visitation throughout scripture where God descended on Sinai and the whole mountain trembled violently. Exodus 19, 18, Isaiah prophesied that people will hide in caves from the terror of the Lord when he rises to shake the earth. Isaiah 2, 19, Haggai writes, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. Haggai 2, 6, this great earthquake is to be accompanied by the sun turning black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the whole moon turning blood red. As the prophet Joel says of the coming great and terrible day of the Lord, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, Joel 2.31. The stars of heaven are pictured as falling to the earth like unripened figs in a winter gale. And of course, Isaiah spoke of the starry host falling like withered leaves from the vine in Isaiah 34.4. It is one of the signs that immediately precede the coming of the Son of Man, according to Jesus in Matthew 24.29. The falling of the stars upon the earth could mean but one thing. To the ancient reader, the end had come. The sky will recede 
like an, uh, an unrolled papyrus scroll that should break in the middle would roll quickly back on either side. And finally, uh, the removing of every mountain and island from its place. It has, that has no uh, parallel in any apocalyptic writing anywhere else. This is a day like no other before or after. The point in the tribulation where the church believers are gathered to the Lord and spared his wrath, which is a result of the opening of the sixth seal as described by Jesus in Matthew 24. So just compare John's vision here in Revelation 6 uh, to Jesus's prophecy in Matthew. John says there was a great earthquake. Again, the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place, which is described later by John as the wrath of the lamb. This is the distinct and abrupt shift from the wrath of men poured out on the earth, which we saw last week, to the wrath of God being poured out on the earth here. Now look at what Jesus says in Matthew 24, immediately after describing the tribulation that he says believers will experience, believers will experience on the earth in verses 15 through 28, Jesus then says, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation of those days, Jesus says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The exact description of John's vision of the opening of the sixth seal. Then, Jesus says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. God's people are taken out of here as God's wrath is poured out on the earth and all those who are left in it which will be a time of terror like no other. Isaiah says that every man's heart will melt. They will writhe like a woman in labor. Isaiah 13, seven and eight. Who can stand when he appears, asks Malachi, for he will be like a refiner's fire, Malachi 3, two. Of course, John sees the people of earth fleeing to the mountains and crying for death rather than standing before the judgment of God and the wrath of the Lamb. The great and terrible day of the Lord where the wicked who are left call out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us, from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? It's not just the weak, by the way, the poor or those without means who suffer in that day. No, it's the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. The most powerful people on earth will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Better to die in a crushing avalanche than to face the wrath of the Lamb. And so in the opening of the first five seals, we heard the prayers of the saints and then the cry of the martyrs, which was the first half of the sermon from last week. And now with the opening of the sixth seal, we hear the call of the wicked. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Do you notice who they're not calling out to? They're not calling out to God. No, John says they're calling to the mountains and rocks. Why aren't they calling out to God? Because they don't know him. 
They're lost, but they don't know they're lost. I'm asking, does that bother you? Does that rack you with fear? Does it affect you at all? Knowing that lost people will never know they're lost if we don't tell them. Because listen, we won't tell lost people about Jesus if we don't fear for their souls. We must fear for the lost. By the way, whenever the word fear appears in the Bible, often and almost apologetically, we explain it as really just referring to some sort of reverence and awe. And to be sure, it does carry that sense when used in reference to how we view God and his word. But it also very much carries the sense of being seized by alarm, terrified, completely and utterly afraid. Just go through the instances of where a theophany, uh, a vision of God was revealed to people all throughout scripture. What do they do? They pass out. The Bible says they, he fell over as if he were dead. Right, it's what happened to John in Revelation. That's real fear, not just reverence and awe, which is exactly how we should feel about this passage in chapter six. We should be terrified at the prospect of anyone living on or leaving this earth without Christ having to face the wrath of God. And and I, I know we live in a religious part of the country where it's easy to be casual about our faith because everybody loves Jesus, right? Listen, it's not enough to say you're a Christian. It's not enough to simply attend the church. It's not enough to simply participate in religious activities. You actually have to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the fact that there are people who attend church meetings and participate in the life of the church and profess to be Christians without ever having actually entered into that relationship, that should rack you with fear. Fear to the point that you could never be casual about your faith around lost people ever again. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. In other words, let's make it count. Let's not be casual about our faith and the people all around us who are dying without it. In fact, you cannot care deeply about the lost and be a casual Christian because there's nothing casual about human souls spending an eternity apart from God. I'm telling you, there must be a renewed sense of urgency within the church today. We have to wake up from our spiritual slumber. We cannot claim to love Jesus and be apathetic about those who have yet to meet him. And it starts right here in the local church. Our fear of what happens to those without Christ must be greater than our fear of what might happen to us when we share Christ with them. You see, if your fear of feeling awkward or uncomfortable when you share your faith overrides your fear for what happens to the lost when they die outside of the faith, then you're far too casual about your Christianity. If your fear of offending others with the gospel overrides your fear of people never hearing the gospel, then you are far too casual about your Christianity. If your fear of being rejected by other people overrides your fear of rejecting God's calling on your life to serve those very people, then you are far too casual about your Christianity. Do you know who was never casual about the gospel? Jesus Christ. In fact, after preaching a particularly hard message in John chapter six, John says when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. How did the people respond? It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, 60 through 66. Before Jesus ever opened his mouth, He knew that his message would offend others and he knew that he would be ridiculed and rejected by most because of it. Yet he shared it anyway. Why? Because the gospel is supposed to offend us. That's the point. Because it forces us to make a decision one way or the other to either follow Jesus in earnest or to walk away from him altogether. The only thing the gospel does not allow for is casual Christianity. A faith that neither challenges us or anyone else. A faith that is useless to either convict us or inspire us. Useless to either inform us or transform us. And completely useless in representing Christ to this world. Because casual Christianity is nothing like the life that Jesus lived. And yet, our churches are full of professing believers who are casual Christians. Because we've made Christianity more about ourselves than about Jesus Christ. So we attend churches based on how well they serve us instead of how well they equip us to serve others. We participate in ministries that we enjoy the most instead of the ones that need us the most. We base our commitment to serving others on how it makes us feel and in doing so we make that service about ourselves but it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ and reaching others with the truth about him. And make no mistake, there is a cost associated with living out that kind of Christianity, which, by the way, is the only kind of Christianity that is modeled for us in Scripture. John Calvin once said, The job of the preacher and the prophet is to tell you the truth as God has told it to them, even when it's unpleasant. We have to be willing to tell people the truth even when it's unpleasant and it starts in the local church. It starts with us being passionate about the gospel to the point of fearing for those who have yet to receive it. Why? Because lost people don't know they're lost. And how will they ever know if we don't tell them? We have to make every moment that God gives us with lost people count because one day, that great and terrible day of the Lord when the seal is opened and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, on that day it will be too late for too many. Does that bother you? Does that rack you with fear? Does it affect you at all? We must fear for the lost if we're going to tell them about him. That's the first part. The second part is we must be passionate about the gospel because if you're not passionate about the gospel, you won't be passionate about sharing the gospel. See, knowing God is the highest calling of mankind. It's the meaning of all human existence, the ultimate goal of every human life and the deepest yearning of every human soul. To know God is to know why you were created and just how profoundly loved and cherished you are. 
Yet because of sin, we're all born into this world not knowing him. And even worse, we cannot get to know him on our own. Doesn't matter how hard you try, under your own steam, you cannot reach God. Doesn't matter if you grew up in church, sang in the choir, gave in every offering, or even lived a good life. There is nothing you can ever do under your own power to get to God. You see, when you stand before Christ, after this life has run its course, he isn't going to ask you which church you attended or how many people you prayed for, or how many wonderful things you did in your lifetime. Because if you never actually knew him, none of that matters. Your religious upbringing is of zero value to your eternity if you do not know Jesus. It's why he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. So just to get this straight, people who prophesied in his name, people who cast out demons successfully in his name, People who did mighty works in his name. He calls those same people workers of lawlessness. Why? Because they never knew him. You cannot get to know God on your own terms, no matter how hard you try. That's the bad news. The good news is, he knows that. And so instead of waiting for us to somehow work our way to him, He came to us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to pursue a relationship with us, and he's been at it ever since. This is God's passion for you and for me, the fact that he longs for a relationship with you, and yet knowing you cannot get to him on your own, he pursues you to the point he was even willing to send his own son to die for you because he's passionate about having a relationship with you. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and eat with me. Revelation 3.20. You understand? You are his passion. Okay, well, doesn't God have anything better to do with his time and energy than to be passionate about me? No. In fact, he created time itself for you which is why there is a yearning to know God present in every human soul, and yet out of arrogance and ignorance, we naturally search in vain to fill that void with everything but Christ, even though he's the only remedy, the only satisfaction for what ails the human race. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable, arises from the image of God and the nature of man. Deep calleth unto deep, and though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply through Jesus Christ our Lord. God came to us in the incarnation, in atonement. He reconciled us to himself, and by faith and love we enter and lay hold on him. Knowing Jesus is the only 
recompense, the only restitution for our sin-stained souls. Knowing him is the only pathway to peace and fulfillment and truth because knowing him puts every other aspect of our lives into its proper perspective. The fact is, there's no other way to correctly understand this world or our place in it apart from knowing Jesus Christ. Yet we cannot know him on our own terms. It is impossible for man to get to God through human effort and understanding alone. That's why Jesus said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what's impossible for man is possible with God. Luke 18, 24 through 27. It's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6, and of course he also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. It's also why the Apostle Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We cannot get to God on our own. It's why he continues to passionately pursue the lost, because lost people don't know they're lost. Not until God draws them to himself and ultimately reveals himself to them through his word. And here's why that should be a profound burden in your life today, if you're a Christian. Because the way God draws people to himself is through you. That's why it's critical that we're in tune with the Spirit of Christ inside of us because the desire of the Spirit of God within you is to relentlessly pursue the lost through you. Because lost people don't know they're lost until someone shows them the way. And that someone is you and me as the Holy Spirit guides us. So look, uh, this may rub some people the wrong way. Uh, The truth has a way of doing that. If you can't remember the last time you told a lost person about Jesus, chances are you're not listening to his voice in your life or following his leading from day to day. You're not, because his desire is to passionately pursue the lost through you. And look, when it comes to making disciples, there's no downtime. There are no vacation days. There are no breaks from telling other people about Jesus. You understand, bearing witness to the lost about Christ and his gospel should be a matter of course and a top priority in your daily life, born out of a passion for the gospel ever at work in your own life. It should always be on your mind and ever in your heart to share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ with those who have never experienced either. Because the lost don't know they're lost until someone shows them the way. But you won't do that, at least not as a normal part of your everyday life. You won't do that if you're not passionate about the gospel working in your own life. You see, because the things you're passionate about the most are the things your life reflects the most. You just think about it. If someone looks at you and your life, someone's around you for any period of time, what do they see? What is noticeable about you? What is recognizable? The things you're passionate about the most are the things your life reflects the most, which raises the obvious question. Are you passionate for the gospel? Because if you are, then the gospel will inform your decisions. It will drive 
your conversations, it will ground your relationships, it will anchor your daily life, how you think and feel and react to life and the people in your life day in and day out will be guided by the gospel at work within you. It's also how other people know it's real because they see it working in you every day and how you act and react to people and circumstances and what you say and how you say it and whether or not there's evidence of it being lived out in your own life. That's the way God leads others to him. Through you, when you're as passionate about the gospel as he is about you. And I'm just telling you, we only get one shot at this. One chance to tell lost people about Jesus, the comfortable parts and the uncomfortable parts, so they understand their need for a savior to rescue them from the wrath of God that we are all facing apart from Christ. It's why John was given this vision to begin with, for us to read, so we understand exactly what is at stake. Namely, a world full of people who are facing the wrath of God and then eternity apart from him. And listen, it's our job to tell them. And because we only get one shot at this, we need to make it count. Because lost people don't know they're lost. And how will they ever know if we don't tell them? Let's pray.